ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Andrew McDermott. Today, we're sharing a recent interview with Dr. Jonathan Witt, conducted by the Denison Forum podcast. Dr. Witt is executive editor of Discovery Institute Press and a senior fellow and senior project manager with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. In this interview, Dr. Witt and host Dr. Mark Turman discuss the central question and main points of Witt's 2006 book, A Meaningful World, How the Arts and Sciences Reveal the Genius of Nature, co-written with Benjamin Weicker. The book tackles the question of whether the world is meaningful or meaningless, purposeful or pointless. Witt argues that the cosmos is charged with both meaning and purpose, from the works of Shakespeare to Euclid's geometry, from everyday substances like water to the intricacy of biological organisms. Today, you'll hear the first half of the conversation. Dr. Witt shares some of his own journey to faith and why he developed skepticism about Darwinian evolution. He discusses the materialistic thinking that has dominated the last 150 years and explains why a meaningful world functions as an antidote to such thinking. Here now is Dr. Mark Turman in conversation with Dr. Jonathan Witt. Welcome back to the Denison Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Turman, your host and executive director of Denison Forum. We appreciate you joining us for this conversation, for every conversation that we have here on the Denison Forum podcast about truth, about culture, about the intersection of faith and what's going on in our world today, answering hopefully questions that you have. Here in the fall, we're dealing with some of those issues that maybe you and your family may be encountering as kids go back to school, as college students start off into a new semester. Uh, Those things about where uh, faith intersect with education, where they intersect with things like science and math and history. We're having those kinds of conversations today. And our guest today will be Dr. Jonathan Witt, who is the executive editor of Discovery Institute Press and a senior fellow and a senior project manager with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is the author of a number of books, including The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and the West Forgot. That was written with Jay Richards. He is also the lead writer and associate producer of a documentary called Poverty, Inc., which was the $100,000 Templeton Freedom Award recipient and has also been viewed and awarded 50 international festival honors. He additionally scripted three other documentaries that have aired widely on PBS and have been translated into multiple languages airing around the world. Witt's academic essays have appeared in various periodicals, and he's been interviewed numerous times in both regional and national radio programs. He's a regular speaker for Discovery Institute's summer seminar on science and culture, and has spoken at a number of universities on a range of topics connected to political and economic freedom, cultural renewal, and the arts. Witt previously served as a tenured professor of literature and writing at Lubbock Christian University. He holds a PhD with honors in English, and literary theory from the University of Kansas. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Witt about his book, A Meaningful World, How the Arts and Sciences Reveal the Genius of Nature. This book was written with Benjamin Whitaker and or Benjamin Weicker and gives an incredible insight into how 
the magnificence of uh, our world and uh, our pursuits academically point to uh, this this reality of genius, which ultimately points back to the ultimate genius of God. So we're excited for you to be a part of this conversation today. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Jonathan Witt, welcome to the Denison Forum podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Well, we got a a lot of ground to cover. And just to remind our audience, uh, we've been focused on uh, educational type topics here in this season of the year as people go back to school, as college students, high school students, all across the ages, uh, getting back into their classrooms, getting their textbooks, getting their assignments, uh, firing up their computers, getting ready for uh, what all of this school year is going to mean, both academically and socially. And uh, so we wanted to talk to Dr. Witt and some others about uh, how things like science and faith, and today, science, art, and faith, uh, how those things are intertwined and how they intersect. And so as we get into that, uh, Dr. Witt wanted to see if you just tell us a little bit about your own journey of faith and uh, how that worked out and then how you ended up doing what you do now at the Discovery Institute. Uh, great question. I, I sometimes joke that I, I get can get testimony envy uh, because, uh, you know, there are these you know, beautiful, dramatic, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus testimonials. Uh, I was raised uh, in the church. And uh, as a you know kid, I, there was never some moment when I thought, oh, I'm, I'm an atheist or I'm going to run away from God. Uh, I did have uh, a period where I became, you know, acutely aware of my sinfulness. Uh, I would say as I grew, it was, for me, it was more getting a stronger sense of God's grace. Uh, uh, that was key for me. In terms of um, intellect, uh, the intellectual part of the journey, I uh, one thing I, I didn't struggle with was as I began to see some of the evidence in nature and, and the history of biology, that uh, certain things that maybe didn't fit as obviously into a certain ways of interpreting Genesis, that wasn't a huge faith struggle for me. Uh, because by that time I was in college, I was uh, taking a lot of literature courses. I was at a Christian university. I actually had some good uh, nowadays. You know, you talk about going to a Christian university it doesn't necessarily mean that your professors are going to be uh, helpful for your faith, unfortunately. Uh, but one of the things that that I found helpful is I was uh, taking what I was learning about literature and and how uh, poetry and that sort of thing worked and seeing some things in the Bible, realizing that the Bible uh, uses uh, poetry and that sort of thing. And I wasn't one of these people that, oh, Genesis is poetry, so none of it's literal. Uh, I didn't go down that path uh, because so much of Genesis really strikes me as, you know, as God's really giving us some facts uh, about life. But I, there was a flexibility uh, as I came to some of the particulars in Genesis so for me, it wasn't a make or break faith issue, for instance, whether the earth was 6,000 years old or much longer. You know, I saw, oh, I could see how um, a particular reading of Genesis, you know, might account for, for either possibility. So it wasn't a real uh, concern of mine. Uh, and even the possibility that evolution was true wasn't a big concern of mine. I, one of the reasons for that was I had a, a brother-in-law who was a, a medical uh, he, he was in med school. He, he was really committed to mission work. He's a very faithful Christian. 
And he himself, as he was exploring and wrestling with uh, evolutionary theory, uh, he had some professors that said, you know what, God wanted to do it that way, he could have done it that way. And so he actually started exploring evolution with a pretty open mind. He's like, you know, I know, I believe God did it, but maybe he used evolution. Well, as he dug uh, further and further into it with an open mind, he didn't really have an ax to grind. He wasn't going to try to go into be, being a PhD in biology where there would have been enormous pressure for him to accept uh, the kind of full Darwinian story. Uh, he was going into med school. There might have been a little pressure, but he just kind of went into it with an open mind. And he, but as he explored it, he, he came to, to realize that the, the case for blind, unguided evolution of all life was extraordinarily weak and that there was a lot of bluffing uh, involved. And so he, he, he recommended a couple of books to me and I read those. Uh, and that started my journey of being quite skeptical of modern evolutionary theory, even if there are certain elements of it. Yeah, polar bears probably did evolve from brown bears, uh, microevolution. Uh, but the big picture of mindless, unguided evolution, microbe demand, uh, it just, uh, for me, it fell apart on the evidence. Uh, so mm-hmm. while that wasn't a make or break issue for my faith, once I saw that evolution had failed, it, it actually became another source of strength for my faith. Because if evolutionary theory fails, you really, you're out of, you're out of luck as an atheist. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous evolutionary biologist, uh, public atheist, he, he put it this way once, uh, Darwin and his theory of evolution made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. I think mm-hmm. he was exaggerating, uh, but his point is you need evolutionary theory to be a, an atheist that can in any way kind of have a leg to stand on because you've got to explain the extraordinary uh, intricacy uh, of the, the living world. Of animals and plants, of the molecular machine you were discovering in cells, you've got to have some other explanation than a designer. And if that if that fails, there's really no other game in town other than a creator. Mm. So, uh, so anyway, so I was a, a professor for a while. I eventually started working for the Discovery Institute, where it's kind of the hub of the intelligent design movement. And so that's allowed me to bring both a kind of a literary aesthetic, because my focus was literature aesthetics that sort of thing. And then, of course, working at Discovery Institute in Intelligent Design, helping edit books, co-author some books. I'm rubbing shoulders with some brilliant scientists. So I had this rare opportunity to be very cross-disciplinary. So that's, that's been really exciting. Yeah, and that's really one of the uniquenesses of, of this conversation and of the book that we want to talk about is just um, how close and how intertwined those worlds are. Uh, particularly the world of literature, the world of uh, of the humanities, the world of history, the world of theology, and how those and the natural sciences are actually deeply, deeply woven together. And that's one of the things that uh, drew me for this conversation and to this particular work of yours. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, well, maybe it's related to that. Uh, one of the things you say early on in the book is that this book that you've written, A Meaningful World, um, and we'll get to the subtitle in just a second, but you describe it as an antidote. And you mentioned a couple of uh, the big names in science that really seem to have dominated the conversation for somewhere around 100 to 150 years, starting with Darwin uh, and then uh, the presence of Sigmund Freud in the early part of the 20th century, 
And now this group represented by Richard Dawkins, sometimes referred to, oftentimes referred to as the new atheists, who really came into prominence, uh, triggered in some way, possibly by the events of 9-11 in 2001. And then you had the, the kind of meteoric rise of uh, the voices of these atheistic scientists of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Peter Singer, mm-hmm. uh, a number of others who became very aggressive, very militant in their uh, approach of atheistic materialism, naturalism. Um, uh, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who went so far as to say that religion is a virus on the uh, hardware of humanity and that needs to be eradicated. Uh, we've talked about that some here at the Denison Forum. Um, but it really does, you, you can see it in popular culture, you can see it in movies, you can see it in other aspects of culture, that it's almost a given that from Darwin to Dawkins, they've been largely unquestioned uh, in a lot of ways for around 100 or so years in our culture. Why do you think that is? How do you think we got to that kind of milieu that we're operating in today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a very complex question. I think there are a lot of threads. I would say that Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, while it falls apart on close scrutiny, it was maybe the first to offer at least a superficially plausible explanation for the origin of you know all these amazing plants and animals we have around us that, that didn't invoke uh, a, a creator. And there were forces already in place in Western society that, that were eager to move toward a atheistic or at least agnostic uh, point of view culturally. Um, Huxley, he formed the X Club, a uh, friend of Darwin's. Uh, he, he wasn't even fully convinced by Darwin's theory. He thought natural selection was too restrictive. If you had to, if you had to build things using natural selection, he, he didn't see how it would work. But he, he didn't see any other game in town. And he had this program of wanting to move culture away from uh, Judeo-Christian religion kind of free it, you know, of the shackles of religion. And so he glommed on to Darwin's theory, even though he, he didn't see it as completely credible and became a very effective uh, proponent of it. He was called Darwin's bulldog, uh, famously. He was, a, he was a pretty effective debater. Uh, and so I think there were just a lot of forces that wanted something like that. And then, you know, how did, how did they kind of march through the institutions? That's, uh, I think it was in, uh, Antonio Gramsci. I may be misremembering his name, but he was a a Frankfurt School uh, Marxist who talked about the need uh, to move through the institutions of Western culture rather than just say, oh, let's try to take over the, the government. He said, you need to move through the universities. You need to move through the, even if you can get into the seminaries, do that. And so that's been there, a very aggressive program. And and to some degree, maybe Christians were kind of asleep at the wheel. We we wanted to, you know, baptize people. We wanted to, you know, convert people. We want we wanted to tell people about Jesus, which is absolutely crucial, important. But you know, I think too many of us have forgot that that I think it was Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, that said, "There's not one square inch uh, of all of creation about which God does not cry mine." Uh, and so, um, I think there's been a wake up call. For Christians and other other theists of, of of goodwill, that we need to be more proactive about uh, culture generally. You know, you know, do we have Christians in Hollywood? Do we have Christians writing novels? Do we have uh, Christians that aren't just running for office, but are uh, you know trying to shape how how we think about 
politics and political economy. Um, and so I think that's the good news. I think, I think there's kind of a wake-up call uh, that we need to be proactive across culture. We need to be salt and light in, in many areas and not just inside the church building. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I mean, even just yesterday, I sat down after work with my wife and she started reading to me uh, the testimony of a popular Hollywood figure, uh, someone that everybody would recognize and started uh, sharing the story of his faith that was published in a recent magazine and just uh, becoming aware that there is no environment um, where Christians are excluded or should be excluded. And uh, as you said, a great wake-up call. Um, I'd like to uh, also ask you to comment, just uh, reframing history a little bit. Um, like I said, if you, if you know Dawkins coming in the uh, latter half, particularly in his influence uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, but if you take a longer look, um, I had a part of my conversation with your colleague, Stephen Meyer, about this, that uh, really the modern scientific movement, even the scientific method that is so uh, predominant in the fields of science today, if you go back 500 years, you find out that you know the modern scientific movement that started around the 1500s was actually initiated by very, uh, very dedicated Christian people who were wanting to discover more about the majesty of God through what God has created and what God has uh, enabled us to discover. Can you kind of reframe that conversation of history and remind us of Absolutely. that? Absolutely, yeah. That, that's a, just a, a wonderful uh, story. And uh, I, I, there was a period where I was working for another think tank that has, has some overlap with Discovery Institute, and we did a documentary called The Birth of Freedom uh, that talked about the Judeo-Christian influence on the rise of um, the good things in Western culture. Obviously, since Western civilization is run by humans and humans are fallen sinners, there's been all kinds of atrocities. But if you compare Western civilization, you know, its rise compared to every other major civilization in history, you know, they would get, they uh, did amazing things. Uh, and the birth of science is one of the things we cover there. Uh, and uh, so that I would recommend that as a, as a good introduction. If you're like, ah, I don't have time to read a book. Well, the birth of freedom. It also looks at the rise of, of representative government, uh, the rise of, of economic freedom, uh, and how many people that's managed to lift out of poverty globally. Um, but yeah, those guys, they, uh, to a man, they were Christians. There might have been some that were, you know, kind of theists, uh, maybe not like Newton may have been not a, a completely orthodox Trinitarian, but, but to a man, they were all theists who believed in a a uh, rational, uh, loving God uh, who created the world and humans are made in his image. And so that, those, those two things combined meant, hey, we could, we could go and study nature carefully and uncover the hidden depths. We talk about uh, nature being a work of genius in our book, A Meaningful World. And we say that there's these different qualities. I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but, but one of those is depth. There's a depth to any work of genius. You don't just, you know, read uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet once. Oh, I got it all. Uh, or go to a really great, deep uh, film. Oh, I got it all in the first try. Uh, mm. No, you know, there's depths and depths and layers and layers to it. Uh, they saw nature as a work of supreme genius. So they expected there to be hidden depths, uh, mysterious things that w- wouldn't immediately reveal themselves to them. But because they're made in the image of the creator, they thought, Hey, if we study it carefully, maybe 
we can uncover the, uh, some of that hidden order. They also believe that God, because he's rational, that maybe there's a hidden elegance there. And so um, Kepler, he, he was uh, one of the famous early astronomers who, who one of his discoveries, you know, pretty much since the case for a, a heliocentric model uh, of, of the solar system. For a long time, you know, practically everybody thought the sun went around the earth and everything went around the earth. Uh, but, you know, Copernicus first and Galileo argued, no, the sun's at the center of the solar system. And Kepler, he came up with these three laws of planetary motion. Uh, and he, he seized upon the, the ellipses as the shape of the rotation instead of a perfect circle. Some people say, well, the ellipses, that's kind of messy. That's not as elegant as a perfect circle. But he stumbled and he was searching for it upon this very elegant mathematical formula to describe uh, the, those orbits. And he, and he said, and this is a paraphrase, when he, when he made this discovery, I was thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm. And so what, what is he talking about? He's thinking God. Well, he thought of God as a mathematician. He thought God, there would be an elegance to God's creation. You know, you look out with your eyes and you see a lot of messiness. Death and decay and, and um, you know, manure turns into soil and worms going. There's a lot of messy stuff. But he said there's got to also be, uh, in addition to all that complexity and depth, I'm thinking there's probably some, some hidden elegance there, some, some order. If, if we can do mathematics as humans, think how, how much more of a mathematician God is. So they went looking for that hidden mathematical order and they found it. So that's one of the spectacular stories uh, of the history of science. And it, and it flips on its head the, the, the kind of modern myth that Christianity is somehow opposed to science. Mm. Christianity is the, is, the, is the soil in which science was born. Right. And that, that Christianity in particular has no fear of science. It actually celebrates it, as you said, because right. it's the, the discovery of God, the thinking of God's thoughts after him. And uh, to see that thread, uh, it's, to me, it's just really the importance of a larger, better reading of history. It rather is. than uh, kind of the soundbite type approach that we take to so many things in our world today. And, and it really gave the foothold to the new atheists, to the Dawkins and the Hitchens of the world, um, to really mischaracterize faith broadly and Christianity specifically. But, but let's go back a little bit to the yeah, title our, just, of the Just quick to kind of put a nod on that. Our quarrel isn't with science. It's a search, that's a search for truth about the natural world. Our quarrel is with scientism, uh, which is this philosophy that dresses itself up as just truth-seeking uh, science, but it's really a philosophy. It's an atheistic, materialistic philosophy posing as objective uh, search for truth about nature. Would you, um, yeah, thanks for bringing up that term. That's, a, that's an impo- important term in this conversation and a distinction that people need to be aware of the difference between legitimate science and scientific pursuit and that of scientism as uh, what might even be described, or would you describe it as uh, a false religion, an idolatry uh, in the context of a Christian terminology? Exactly. Yeah. Would you put it in those con in that context? Yeah, because it's not just a, a, a way of kind of looking at the world. It it does. It is a substitute religion. You think, uh, Science is going to solve everything. Uh, and it's not just any kind of science. It's science uh, yoked to materialism, to this idea that ultimately all there is is matter and energy. Your soul isn't real. The idea uh, of an immaterial creator isn't real. Uh, love, uh, 
that's just glands, chemistry. There, there's not anything authentic there. Good and evil, those are just constructs. Uh, so scientism has a, uh, has a materialistic, uh, philosophical, ideological substructure, and, and it's a substitute religion. Hmm. Let, me, let me get you to chase a rabbit with me on that topic for just a second. And that is, do you think that uh, the, the shared experience that we all had over the last three, three and a half years relative to COVID and the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, there was oftentimes this, um, this clarion call and then criticism of, well, just trust the science, just trust the science. Um, do you think the uh, ideology of scientism has taken a hit and a step backward uh, because of the journey through the pandemic and that, you know, the world was grappling with something that we had long talked about as a possibility, but now it was upon us and science couldn't readily and quickly explain it and solve it. Uh, do you think that's kind of hurt the movement of scientism or affected it in any way? Well, I hope that it has caused a lot of people to, to realize just because somebody in a white lab coat or the head of some you know, scientific branch of government says, science says that what is really happening is a particular fallible human being is saying, here's what I think. And rather than look carefully lay out the evidence in front of you, I'm going to make a appeal to authority. Uh, and uh, that that should raise our uh, um, baloney detector. Uh, you know, why is, you know, why is he making this questionable appeal to authority if he can just trot out really powerful evidence for what, you know, for what he's saying? Um, and so, yeah, we, we saw a lot of flip-flopping uh, that I think it should be educational, that, that we need to be uh, not be led around by the nose by somebody just claiming scientific authority. Right. And one of the, one of the healthy signs of a healthy person and, and a healthy scientist, for that matter, would be someone who says that it's okay to say, I don't know. They're, right. they're just were uh, times when all scientists need to be able to say that with the proper kind of humility, and especially when something of a of the nature of a hopefully once in a lifetime, once in a millennium global pandemic that we can say, you know what, there was just a lot we didn't know, and now we know a lot more, but we don't know everything that we would like to know, and that's that's always the journey of of what right. of what life and science is all about. Let, let's go back to the book a minute. The book is titled A Meaningful World, and then the subtitle, How the Arts and Science Reveal the Genius of Nature. Give us the backstory of what prompted you to write this book in the first place. Great question. I was working, by then I was working at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. That's the hub of the intelligent design movement. Uh, And so that's some important context because the theory of intelligent design uh, in a nutshell, it says that there are things in nature uh, that c- carry a clear mark of having been created by a designing intelligence. In other words, they didn't happen by some law-like, you know, ma- magnetism or or something random like floods or earthquakes or tornadoes. That there, there was a, a planning, forethinking uh, designer at work. Uh, putting that together. So certain things in nature, it could be the the, the molecular uh, outboard motor we call the bacterial flagellum uh, that uh, Michael B. makes a, a really powerful argument. It has the, the earmark of design. 
It could be the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of, of physics and chemistry for life. Um, that's a, such a problem for atheists that the, the name for that issue in physics is the fine-tuning problem. Uh, they just call it the fine-tuning. Well, it's not a problem to a theist, uh, but to some people it's a problem because <laughs> why, why would gravity and all these other be just right to allow for stars and planets to form and, and uh, hundreds of other ways? Uh, Steve Meyer probably got into that a little bit. Uh, um, when you talk to him, you can you know find his stuff online or get his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. He goes into depth about that. Uh, and many Nobel laureates have said fine-tuning points to a designer. So, so intelligence, right? Uh, that's that's where, where ID kind of stops. Says, look, there there's a designing intelligence. But we said uh, Ben Weicker and I uh, said, you know. We don't just have a uniform experience of what intelligent agents can do and can't do and what, and what an intelligent agent can do beyond what, say, a tornado can do. We have uniform and a rich experience of what geniuses can do, you know, a higher form of intelligence. And since I had a background in the arts and Ben Weicker had some background in that as well as uh, he was, he's also a, a kind of jack-of-all-trades, uh, shameless generals like myself. Uh, we said let's 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 look at some of the iconic works of genius in you know Western civilization, see if we find some common uh, themes, characteristics, and then see go back into nature and see if we find those. And mm-hmm. so and so so we did. Uh, we found you know some common characteristics. We we boiled it down to four, and then we show how whether you're looking at chemistry, we're looking at at cosmology, whether you're looking at biology, we find these characteristics of genius. So we kind of took it to the next level, if you will, took the intelligent design argument to the next level. That was the first half of a conversation between Dr. Jonathan Witt and host Dr. Mark Turman, discussing the nature of genius and the genius of nature. Look for the second half of the interview in another episode. I want to thank the Denison Forum for permission to rebroadcast this conversation. Learn more about the podcast at denisonforum.org. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.